Welcome to the Best Player Wins Podcast, where we believe that winning is winning. No matter by how little or by how much, we are your hosts. I am Nate Endries, hosting alongside Jake Deemer. Jake, welcome back after a little bit of a brief hiatus. How was your off week? Uh, it was good. But it was a grinding defensive battle with Jerowin this, this past week, but the team pulled it out. Yeah, I have a feeling, so I don't want to spoil the league history fact of the week, but can you just confirm yes or no? Was this the lowest scoring matchup in league history? If by lowest scoring you mean best defensive battle, then yes. That's the <laughs> all right, all right. We'll move on. Uh, welcome into episode 12, looking ahead to week 11, recapping week 10. Looking back at last week, Continuing the streak of this little mini slump that the guest is on, Nick went two and four with his matchup predictions last week, and I'm bouncing back, Jake. I went four and two, kind of inching closer and closer to a 500 overall record with matchup predictions, so I'm excited about that. Hopefully I have a good week this week, too, because this is the last week that I'm going to be able to catch up on that, or I want to say I think the next time I will be on after this is three weeks from now, because I think I'm off the next two. So again, I went four and two. Nick went two and four. Uh, Jake, two big takeaways from week ten. Give me your first one. Uh, so this is, I mean, this is probably pretty obvious, but I just sort of looked at this because I would just traded for a catcher. Uh, catcher feels like it's even more of a wasteland this year than in the past. Varsho, who I actually thought has been really underachieving and hasn't really even been very good this year. It's currently the fourth overall catcher, despite his struggles. And the most surprising thing to me is Salvador Perez is just nowhere to be found. He's just, he's been awful. And I think he was one of the one, one of the keepers in the keeper draft that we were talking that could be one of the the biggest potential profits. And here he is as not. I don't even think he is a top ten catcher right now. He is number which 10. is really which is saying so. Well, even if he's number ten, that's still. It's pretty brutal. It it's is a pretty, pretty brutal total. It is pretty bad. This actually proves your point. But if he hits one home run, he'll become the number eight catcher. He'll jump two players. He just yeah, hits one home run. <laughs> catcher's rough. I guess I didn't realize the extent of how bad it was until I was trying to trade for a catcher and seeing it with my own eyes. Yeah, it, it is pretty brutal. Uh, my first big takeaway is that it feels like there are a few teams that are starting to create separation from the pack. So through recent trades and performance, I think that teams like Nick, me, Jake, and Jordan seem to be trending upward pretty quickly, while other teams that I still consider good, like Sam and Courtney, they're mostly standing pat. Uh, JC I would also consider a good team, but I've kind of excluded him here because it does feel like he's been very active in the trade market relative to prior years for him personally, but his willingness to deal this year, I think it's been stifled somewhat by a few unlucky injuries. Um, so yeah, my first takeaway, we've been talking about you know throughout the season that there's no juggernaut team or that there's not a lot of separation from the top to the bottom. 
but I think that we're starting to see just a handful of teams start to creep their way up into, I guess, what you and Jordan would call juggernaut status. Jake, give me your second big takeaway. So my second big takeaway is we might have ourselves just a fun little wild card race. Uh, Brendan, Eddie, and Jarwin are kind of all I, – I don't see any one team among those among those three that is – head and shoulders above the other ones and they're not separated by many games right now so i think it's going to be a nice little nice little battle here for the final wild card spot uh they're only separated by one game and uh even their point totals are pretty close so i don't really see a clear uh a clear team to beat out of those three um i don't really see scott or mike making a run here at that last wild card spot so i think it's going to come down to those three teams And it should be pretty close the rest of the way. My second big takeaway is that Paul Goldschmidt may be this year's Marcus Semyon. So that statement is probably confusing on the surface because Semyon has been pretty bad this season. But I mentioned earlier in the season on the podcast that he did finish as the number two overall hitter last year, seemingly out of nowhere. And Paul Goldschmidt has only been matched this season by the likes of Jose Ramirez, Aaron Judge, Rafael Devers, and Bryce Harper. But the only guy that I just named who has outproduced him so far on the season is Jose Ramirez, who obviously we've discussed is on record-breaking pace. So I think it's pretty clear. Paul Goldschmidt, currently the number two hitter, the number four overall player. 34 years old, he is a 2022 fantasy superstar. That brings us to the top three standings update in the East Division in third place. We have the NFTs, JC, 12 and 8. Second place, weak pullout hitter Sam at 12 and 8. And in first place, Freedom All-Stars Nick with a 15 and 5 record. No change in the East Division from last week. In the West Division in third place, we have Team C. Deemer, Courtney with an 11 and 9 record. Second place is my team, Demons in the infield with a 13 and 7 record. And in first place, longtime spot holder is the Walk Institute of Research, Jordan, with a 15-5 and record. I believe that is also no change from last week's episode. Jake, we've been busy on the trades portion of the podcast lately, and it continues this week. We've got three trades to discuss. One is going to headline this segment, but let's get into the first of the week since last week's episode. Courtney dipped her toes in the waters of the trade market, finally getting involved giving up Jorge Polanco, and in return, I gave her Kyle Gibson. Give me your thoughts on this trade. Is this not the one that is going to headline the week? <laughs> it trades? is not the headliner. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know about it. It's, it's fine. This one's fine. I don't, what, are, what are we really going to talk about with Polanco, who I think is, I think is hurt right now? He is. He's and on Kyle, this. And Kyle Gibson. Gibson's been good. Polanco is slumped to start the year. Um, Courtney has a good starting pitching rotation, but did not really have any depth behind it. I had probably too much depth, so I saw an opportunity. I wasn't really counting on a trade to work out just because of Courtney's track record, um, but saw that she hadn't been starting Polanco consistently, you know, in the recent weeks leading up to the trade, and obviously I had recently traded Altuve, I figured I'd try to take a stab at another second base option. So that's just kind of how the deal played out. I sent her a text and said, 
hey, I sent you this offer, figured you might need some starting pitcher depth, and uh, she saw it and accepted it. Simple as that. Easy peasy. This is the headliner of the week, Jake. The absolute blockbuster, what is it, 10-player trade? Yeah. I don't even know. 10 players. Brendan gave up. Jose Altuve, Byron Buxton, Framber Valdez, Chris Bassett, and Andrew Heaney. Jake, in return, you gave him Jordan Alvarez, Patrick Sandoval, Dakota Hudson, Jorge Soler, and Bryson Stott. Now, I will share my thoughts and then let you respond. I'm going to lead off by saying that Jorge Soler and Bryson Stott were both cut within two days of this trade happening. So if you want to just get that out there from the start, Jake gave up Jordan Alvarez, Patrick Sandoval, and Dakota Hudson to get the five players, Altuve, Buxton, Valdez, Bassett, Heaney. I've been reflecting on this a lot, and we did recently discuss Jordan Alvarez as, you know, if not cracking the top 10 most valuable players in the league right now for fantasy, he is probably in the top 12 because of his value this season and as a keeper. Now, one thing to consider is that that value for this season gets taken away when you have a team that's not really competing or going after it this year. So obviously in Brendan's case, he's just targeting the keeper value of Jordan here, which is very good. He's a, he is one of the best keepers in the league. But when you consider the return that Jake got for Jordan Alvarez, Altuve is a fourth-round draft pick next year. Buxton, I believe, is a 12th-round draft pick next year. Framber Valdez, I believe, is a fifth-round draft pick next year. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of these, Jake, if you do know off the top of your head. I do not, so I'm just going to assume you're right. Okay. Chris Bassett is a seventh-round draft pick next year, and Andrew Heaney was undrafted, but he's looked good in every start that he's made this year, although it was interrupted by injury. He's back and healthy now. Jordan Alvarez is the best keeper in this trade, but I don't think that there is a cliff between Jordan and the second most valuable keeper in this trade, which I would probably say is Byron Buxton. Maybe you could argue Jose Altuve based on health and track record. But the point is that Jake got four players back, like completely reloaded his keeper pool with not just like, okay, I don't have a lot of quality keeper options. I'll keep these guys. These are guys that you would want to keep. They're good players at good values. And so... I guess where I landed with that is my thought that my thought would be that Jordan Alvarez to a selling team would likely be worth Jose Altuve, Byron Buxton, and maybe, maybe like a Chris Bassett or an Andrew Heaney or a Framber Valdez, you know, one of those pitchers. Patrick Sandoval, I don't think that Brendan is likely to keep. I believe he was taken. Jake, did you take him in the 12th round this year? 13th round? Uh, it was, somewhere around it was either the 12th or the 13th. So he'll be a 9th or a 10th round keeper option next year. Uh, but I also think that Luis Severino might be the same round. I can't remember. I want to um, say Severino's 14, but I might be mistaken on that. Yeah, it's, it's close. I guess bottom line is I think that the only player that Brendan plans to keep in his return is Jordan. I, you know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think the fact that it's questionable makes it very clear that Jordan was the big get for Brendan. 
And Jake, you got four players that are good keepers and good contributors for a competing team, plus Andrew Heaney, who has looked like he has a ton of upside for this year. So I'm not going to slam anybody for this trade, but I think objectively, as it stands currently, we've seen you know keeper trades pan out differently in the past than what we initially thought, but I don't think that this was a good trade. I think that Brendan paid way too handsomely to land Jordan. Jake, what was you can you know you can respond to that. You can give your thoughts on making the move. You can talk about the process of the negotiation. Whatever you'd like, the floor is yours. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I actually hate trades like this for for me to make. Like, I don't mind when other people make them because that's it's not my not my team. But I don't like said I don't like a trade where the best player and I'll I would argue that Gordon Alvarez is the best player in this trade by a mile is also the best keeper. And I think I, I initially actually declined trying to trade Jordan Alvarez, but I think Brendan kind of caught me at a time where my, my mindset around my team was kind of down. He was very persistent. And he, I guess he just kind of wore me down. It didn't help that I was, I was down on my team at the time, but I, I normally hate trades like this. Um, I don't know what to think about what how it how it happened like I, I like that I got so many players because I think that my team was needed a lot of help but at the same time I also didn't fill a whole lot of the holes on my team and if there is as if there is such a thing as too much pitching I probably have too much pitching but uh I guess that's more from a fit standpoint but mm-hmm. I mean I, I think that the value is oh I I I didn't want to give up Jordan Alvarez. So I, I basically, I like I basically told him up front, like you're going to have to blow me away with an offer. And that's kind of what, this is kind of what we landed on. Yeah. Um, I would, I would definitely say it's, you know, it's a safe thing to say he blew you away with an offer. I want to confirm Patrick Sandoval and Luis Severino were drafted in the same round this year. So I put it at a 5% chance that Brendan would keep Sandoval over Severino. So that means that Jordan Alvarez is the only keeper that Brendan gets in this trade. When he gave up Byron Buxton, who I'll confirm all of their value right now, as my page just froze. Byron Buxton was drafted in the 16th round, so that would make him a 12th rounder next year. Jose Altuve, I already know because he was on my team. He would be a 4th rounder next year. Framber Valdez was taken in the 7th round this year. That would make him a 5th rounder next year. Chris Bassett, I believe he was a ninth rounder this year. That is correct. So that would be a seventh rounder next year. I totally get where you're coming from, Jake. Like, because in a dynasty league, for example, like I have shares of Juan Soto, I have a share of Ronald Acuna, I have shares of Fernando Tatis. There are just certain players that you don't trade, right? Because it would take a stupid return that would cause the league to go in an uproar. Um, there's just players that you don't trade. So I hear what you're saying when you say, like, I was not looking to trade Jordan. Uh, You told Brennan it would take an offer that would blow you away. I agree with that approach. I just think, I guess, realistically, coming from Brendan's side, I just don't know that it made sense to... He, I mean, the truth is that he did reload your keeper pool. I would think that at least three of the five players that you got in return 
at a minimum two that I think you'll definitely keep, but I think that there's a good chance that three of these five players turn into keepers for you while also helping you to compete this year. Um, so again, so that's, not, that's interesting. I'm actually, I mean, I haven't, I should just, I guess say up front, I have not looked too deeply into my keepers. Sure. That's probably bad. That's probably bad practice, but mm-hmm. I was actually thinking might, it might just be Buxton as a keeper because i do like so vlad is definitely one of your keepers right second round vlad Mm -hmm. and then you have buxton in the 12th round i'm looking at your team the only other candidates i would see outside of these guys that we're talking about now dalton varsho in the seventh round i i doubt it (laughs) right i'm looking more on the pitching on the pitching end yeah you have flarity who's pretty late i really really could be a fourth rounder over altuve that was a decision that i elected against Gonsolin is actually super late. I think I drafted him in like the 18th. And I still have uh, Dustin May. True. As well. I mean, Clevenger's there as well, but that, that'll, that might be, I don't know. He's kind of a, a fragile human, so I don't know. If yeah. We'll see. We'll see on him. But I don't, I don't want to beat the horse on this because I respect your philosophy. I I respect Brendan as a manager with the amount of top three finishes that he's had. I just think this particular instance, I don't think that Brendan realized that regardless of your other options, like he, he gave you, you know, plenty of options for your keeper pool to be fully reloaded as a competing team. And that is a very dangerous position to be in. Uh, in terms of like among your other competitors, your competitors, that's where you want to be, right? You want to be competing for it this year and be set up great for next year. And I think that this trade accomplished that pretty handsomely for you. Yeah, I almost wish this would have happened earlier than so that I, there were actually sellers that I could trade all these keepers to. Yeah. <laughs> like nobody that's a fair left. point. That is a fair <laughs> point. Uh, and I will say last note on this trade, I did, t- I don't want to sound like a hypocrite. I told Brendan that I th- I personally thought that he should try to exchange Byron Buxton for another keeper of very high value just because I'm very leery of Buxton's health. I think he's an incredible player, but I just, I don't know, man. He's gotten hurt so often that it can just, his value can vanish at the snap of a fingers because of how often he gets hurt. So I don't want to suggest that, like, I think that Byron Buxton is a superstar, one of the best keepers in the league, but at the 12th round, like, there's no, there's not a single team right now that wouldn't keep him there. So he is still a good keeper. Um, I just told Brendan like a couple of weeks ago, maybe like, Hey, you should look to exchange him for another high value keeper. It just so happens in this deal that he traded Buxton and three other potential keepers who are also great contributors <laughs> to get that other high value keeper. Um, but we'll move on from this deal. The last one, this is the true headliner of the week. Jake, you gave up Alex Cobb, and in return, Jerwin gave up Dalton Varsho. Talk us through the thought process on this one. I just needed a catcher. and I, Like I said, I, I, I really like Alex Cobb. His, if you can believe it, his XFIP is actually three runs lower than his ERA right now. It's really crazy. So I still, I still really like Alex Cobb. I think he's probably been the unluckiest pitcher in baseball so far. But uh, yeah. I basically just needed a catcher, and I had a lot of pitching to spare. What do you have against William Contreras? He's not starting. Is he not? No, he's he's. There was a there was a period where he was kind of 
I don't want to say platooning, but him and Darno were sort of bouncing back and forth. But he, the week that I had him, I think on my, I can't remember if it was on my bench or starting, he was not, he, he started like once every third day or once every fourth game or something like, or something like that, where it's, even if he's hitting well, just wasn't really a game that I wanted to play, I guess. I thought that they were DHing him on days where he wasn't starting, kind of like swapping him and Darno out. I haven't paid too close attention to what they're doing with their catchers. I do own a lot of Atlanta Braves across my fantasy leagues, but I don't have any Atlanta catchers across my leagues. But I I mean, I thought that this was a fine trade. Nick was like, why would Jerwin do that? Yada, yada. But I tend to agree more with your take on Varsha, which is that he sucks. And unless he... Like only because he has catcher eligibility do we consider him like do we even raise an eyebrow or raise a thought at okay, I want Dalton Dalton Varsho on my team. Because of that, I think that this is just a fine like I thought, okay, whatever. This this trade I mean, is fine. So not only that. I mean Varsho is legitimately like a bad hitter. So the only reason I think even if he was if he played catcher normally, I still don't think that we would care. It's just that he plays outfield and he's in the lineup most it's, yeah it's because of the volume and that, he, that's the only reason he's relevant he has a 714 ops which is just very av- probably below at uh i don't know what league average ops is I, it's a fine trade i think is the summary of, of jake and i's viewpoint here uh let's get into the main segment of this week's episode it is mid-season team grades so we're going to go through every single team give every team an overall team grade and this is all inclusive of draft waiver wire transactions trading um and i kind of did this in a completely random order because i didn't want it to seem like we were going from low grades to high grades or vice versa so i tried to put everybody in a completely random order and jake i don't know what your philosophy was with giving out grades i tried to do it from the standpoint of for our selling teams I tried to think as a seller, okay, how would I grade that team being in a seller position and vice versa for the buyers? So that made it tough to grade, and maybe I gave out some pretty bad grades, or I should say some harsh grades to the teams that I might consider in between. But that was my personal process for this segment. I don't know if if you had one or if you want to speak on that, I guess, as we go throughout each team. I guess I was I had a little bit of a different take since we were also including draft in it so i was trying to include the draft so i mean if somebody sure. was coming into it I'm, I'm assuming nobody came into this year being like oh i'm gonna tank now so i was right. sort of factoring that in a little bit but mm-hmm. I, I can kind of adjust on the fly well i'm not saying you have to conform to my process i'm just kind of giving some context into the grades that i'm about to throw at you so i i, I appreciate a different kind of viewpoint on it and I, I bet that others would as well. So the first team that we have is Big Money Mike himself. The team grade that I gave for Mike is a C minus. And the we have kind of three areas that I laid out already: the draft, waiver wire transactions, and trading. For each one of these teams, we're going to kind of say like we primarily attribute our team grade to X area of these three main areas of team building. And for Mike, I picked trading. Uh, Nick and I were talking recently about how fun it is to play fantasy with Mike because you never know 
what's going to happen at any given moment. Like once he gets this idea in his head that he's going to trade somebody, like it's happening, you know, whether you want it to or not, or whether you think that it's a smart thing to do or not, it is happening. But we also talked about how Mike, one of his flaws as a fantasy manager is he just doesn't know when to sit on his team. Like if the, if trading is open, the deadline has not passed. Mike is going to be wheeling and dealing whether his team is good or whether his team is awful. And where that's a negative thing is where his team is good and he has something good going and he kind of just tinkers his way out of a good thing. I think based on the quantity of trades that Mike has made so far this year, that is likely the reason, like reason number one for the state that his team is currently in, which is in the standings, dead last, 4-16 and 16 as a seller. He does have Shohei Otani. He does have O'Neill Cruz, who you know, is an exciting player to have as a potential keeper. Carlos Rodon is going to be an amazing keeper. I think Pablo Lopez will be a good keeper. But I wouldn't say that he has the best keeper pool in the league, or maybe not even the second best keeper pool in the league. And that's not necessarily what you want as a selling team with basically zero pieces left to sell off. So that is why I give Mike a C-. minus. What do you have for big money, Mike, Jake? Uh, ironically, I also have a C minus, but I actually attributed this more to kind of the draft and the early season process. And what I, what I mean by that is I, I don't think Mike really ever even gave himself a chance to be good this year with how many injured players or even in Trevor Bowers case, suspended players he, he drafted pretty early. Uh, and then on top of that, most of these players didn't ever even played for him because he traded because he traded them away shortly after I'm thinking like Shane Baz uh, I don't know Tatis is still on his team um, I, guess, I don't know if we even want to count Bellinger but Bellinger's in this kind of in this category where I, I think that Mike was so risky or went with so many risky picks early and injured players where it was almost like it's almost a, a given that he wasn't going to be good early because most of his team wasn't healthy and then on top of that, it's, he, he, I don't think he really reaps too many of the rewards from hanging on to some of these elite players because they were off his team before they were even back. So I don't know that he ever really gave himself a chance with that, with the draft strategy. I mean, it, 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 if he was going to wait it out, then maybe. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't like the approach with taking so many injured players and kind of just hoping to weather the early season storm with that and then, but I, I'm kind of split on the trades that he, that he made. Um, I don't really, I didn't really see it at work. I think the Cabrera trade was sort of, I want to say reactionary, but it was like, we'd only seen what one start from Cabrera at that point. There's no way to tell yes. if you want to invest a significant capital in him as a potential keeper, at least to me, but I did really like the Rodon trade. And uh, Lopez should be a pretty, pretty solid keeper too. So I'm kind of split on the trades, but uh, the grade for me mostly is the the draft and then um, some of the early season moves. So that's why I, I also have a C minus. Second team is Courtney. Team C Deemer. Jake, the grade that I have for Courtney is a B minus, uh, primarily due to uh, I guess part of it is all three. What I'm going to highlight is the waiver wire transactions and trading. And really what I, what I guess I'm getting at with that is the lack thereof. I actually like Courtney's draft. I think that at its core, her team is good. She has 
Francisco Lindor, Aaron Judge, Bryce Harper, Will Smith, and Jose Abreu as kind of like that's like basically half of her offensive lineup that's anchoring it down. Those are good players. And in her starting pitching rotation, you Darvish, Logan Gilbert, Frankie Montas, Zach Wheeler. She just traded for Kyle Gibson from me. That's a good starting pitching rotation. But I guess where she has holes, Courtney is just not the type of manager that is going to be actively looking to fill those holes. And so that's why, you know, where you have a solid team at its core, I think that the grade kind of gets pulled down slightly from what it could be because of just the lack of willingness or I guess lack of enthusiasm to, to address the holes. So it's kind of a mixed answer. I like the core of the team, but there's, and I know it, she did just make a trade this week, so I don't want to, I guess, speak too harshly because maybe she'll be looking to be a little bit more active at this point in the season. I don't know. I want to let that play out before I condemn her to, you know, condemn my opinion on her to say she's just not going to make any more moves. This was just a once in a blue moon. But I think until I see that, it's it's B minus is kind of the ceiling of the overall team grade that I have for her. What do you have? We're off to a great start. I also have a B minus. Um, <laughs> the I, I think the the draft, I, like you said, the core of the team's really good. I really did like the draft. Um, I think the biggest issue for me is that her. It's not even just one reliever. It's like her entire bullpen has been a huge problem all year and it really has yet to, to be addressed. Like, it just feels like she's kind of churning through middling waiver relievers, like every single week, hoping that something sticks and nothing has yet at this point. Like, I think you have to try to do something beyond just picking guys up and maybe try to trade for somebody, anyone who's established because the entire bullpen right now, I think is a problem. And uh, it has been that way all year. So that's the major um, that's the major factor there that's driving the grade down. I would say third base too, but third base is kind of just a problem for a lot of people. So I I wasn't really like there's sort of there's there's kind of a point where there's like nothing you can really do mm-hmm. with third base. So I wasn't really going to penalize that too much. But yeah, the reliever the relief core is the main reason that I'm kind of that my my grade is more harsh here. Uh, I'm also going to dinger based on past performance. Um, this is not this is, this is not up up to snuff with the with the past with some of the Courtney teams in the past. I know that's not really what we're supposed to be grading on, but it's your philosophy, it right? <laughs> I mean, I guess there's no right way to grade it. Right, so. <laughs> right. Give your own little spice, your own little pizzazz to the to the team grades here. Third team we have is Sam, weak pullout hitter. Jake, the grade that I gave for him, Mike, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it'll come in a little bit lower than what you might have for him based on how much I know you've liked his team all season. But I have a B-plus for Sam, primarily due to the draft. Uh, we talked about coming into the year that Sam had a lot of good keepers and a lot of those good keepers coming in extremely late-round pick. Uh, value and that allowed Sam to build his team through the early rounds, kind of getting the big name players. We thought that he was going to be the juggernaut early in the season, even though he has failed to separate himself. I still like the core of his draft. I know he has a lot of underperforming players like Alex Bregman, Whit Merrifield, Nick Castellanos, uh, but those are players that I still kind of expect, just based on a long track record, to bounce back. And so Sam still, to me, has a 
fairly complete team, a team with a lot of pedigree. And so I think that that is a recipe for success. I would primarily attribute the, I would consider it a higher grade of B plus to the draft. Um, I guess where he's failing to kind of get into that A minus A, A plus range for me is that he sat by and watched while all of his competitors kind of went on a shopping spree among the selling teams. But what do you have for Sam's team? That's the same thing I have. Then that's very similar reasoning. Like I have a B plus and I'm my top note here is Sam should be very thankful for his keepers that he accumulated last year, because I think that's really the biggest reason that he's, he's sitting, he's sitting here right now, despite not having uh, made one trade. Um, he hasn't really, been, he hasn't really added um, too many impact players on the, on the waiver wire. I mean, his, his team was good enough coming out of the draft that he didn't really need to, but it's not like he doesn't have some keepers that he could try to trade or try to move that could have pushed his roster over the top. So I guess the lack of aggression there where, and I'll use the example from a couple of years from when was that like 2020? Yeah. Yeah. 2020. So like I, that was the year I traded Ronald Acuna Jr. and Josh Hader for Jacob DeGrom. Like that was a prime win now move despite Acuna being in what we consider to be like a super keeper normally a guy that you don't really trade. So I think that the lack of like, that was like, I saw the opportunity to try to, to try to win and, and I needed some pitching help. So that's what I, that's what I did. I think that like that might be missing from Sam's team here where like, you don't know how long you're going to have an unstoppable team. So this actually gets into a kind of an interesting philosophy, I guess, regarding keepers. Like I would rather play for them now when I know that I have a terrific team than kind of bank on keeping the core together for another two to three years, because stuff can happen. Like maybe he doesn't have as good a draft down the line. The keepers aren't quite as valuable. Uh, he's, you don't know if you're going to get back to this position where you are now. So I think basically Sam's la- I'm, I'm kind of penalizing Sam here for his lack of aggression with capitalizing on this, on this team that he has right now. And like you said, while everybody, while the teams around him are all getting better, he's kind of just stood pat. I don't think that he has the, the roster separation that he once did. Whereas if maybe he did move a player or two, he could have still been in my, at least in my eyes, like head and shoulders above everybody else. So that's kind of where my grade comes from here. Still a very good team, but I, I don't like the lack of aggression and trying to kind of pounce on the window that he has right now. The next team is Scott team Eminon team. No name. Uh, I think Jake, this will be, this will be the first grade where we probably differ more than slightly. My team grade for Scott is a B and Scott has not had a lot of activity yet this year, but I think he's had the right amount. So what I primarily attribute this grade to Scott's team as a seller is due to the trading. And I guess what I'm specifically looking at is obviously he came into the year with a core of Bobby Witt Jr. and Julio Rodriguez kind of, those are his two offensive anchors, right? And I think even though both have been, I'm not going to say underwhelming, but they have not lit the world on fire in terms of quantifiable fantasy production, I think that they're likely going to turn into fantasy stars um i think probably by you know mid-year next year that's what i would expect for these two guys 
I really like that Scott went out through trades this year and still has plenty of competitive pieces left. I shouldn't say plenty, but he does have a few that would be desirable, like Nolan Arenado, Miles Michaelis, potentially a Roldis Chapman if Aaron Boone wants to screw around and not use Clay Holmes as his closer. Um, I really like that Scott added Mackenzie Gore. I really like that Scott added Aaron Ashby. I really like that Scott added George Kirby. Those are three guys that, you know, what are the chances that all three pan out and live up to the potential? I wouldn't say they're very high, but I like the fact that he is gathering quality in a kind of like a quantity fashion. He got three guys that have super high pedigree, um, and the plus side of that is he has three of them. So if one doesn't hit, that's okay. So I kind of like, even though it's a keeper league with a maximum of three years of eligibility and the offensive guys that I mentioned already have burned one year of that eligibility, I do like the kind of young core that Scott is building. And uh, that is why I attribute what I'm guessing is going to be a higher grade than yours of a B for Scott's team as a selling team, or as, as I think... From my viewpoint, it's a selling team, even though he still does have competitive pieces, like I mentioned before. What is your grade for Scott's team? So I have a C, and my main, I think this has been kind of been my criticism all along. It's just it's too many prospects for me. So I guess to illustrate this, is Wander Franco. I, I would That's probably his best offensive piece. I totally neglected to mention Wander Franco, so thank you for adding him to the conversation here. Wander Franco is only eligible for one more year. I just, you're burnt. Like, I, this is why, like, I don't really, I, I, I don't, I'm not huge on prospects as keepers. Franco has one more year, and I cannot say for certain, for certain that Scott's team is going to be, that I, that I would like Scott's keepers next year. I guess, like, Gore and Kirby, they're not going to be pitching many innings next year. It's just not going to happen. Ashby, same thing. And I'm not totally sold on his command right now. I still like Ashby, but he's got some things to sort out before he, before I can anoint him as a set and forget fantasy starter. I I agree with you on Rodriguez. I I do also really like wit. I think they'll be fine, but I guess like at some point I would like to see him go after more established options that can contribute right away. Because at some like, if you just go after prospects forever, for one thing, they're not all going to pan out. Most of them won't. And another thing is it's probably going to take a year or two for it to happen. So I don't think that you're going to to really have an unbelievable keeper pool. I think you need, you need to kind of all come together at one time. And I guess like, this just feels to me like you're just kicking the can down the road. Like just, I don't know. I'd like to see more established options in Scott's keeper pool, kind of to maybe supplement some of these, some of these other guys, because I think that's the way that he's going to have, that he's going to win. I don't know that you can really count on all of these guys turning into elite options at one time. And by, at that point, you might only have one year left to capitalize on them anyways. Yeah, that's a completely, that is a fair point of view. I think I, it's been clear that I've been the optimist on Scott's team all season, like even right after the draft. And I think maybe part of that is rooted in my enthusiasm for dynasty format. Um, I will say I don't employ the prospect heavy approach too often in our keeper league, even though I am enthusiastic about dynasty format, 
but I think maybe that's where some of my, I guess, implicit bias comes from the enthusiasm or the optimism for Scott's team. So I think either way you want to look at it, I think that you can put on the rosy glasses and, and think about all the potential that the players that he would probably consider his best keepers have. Or you can look at it from your viewpoint, Jake, that, uh, you know, it's, it's not a good strategy to put all of your faith or all of your marbles in the potential buckets, right? So I guess that's where the different viewpoints come from. But the next team, uh, I think we're going to get back on the same page here, Jake, is Freedom All-Stars. That's Nick's team. The grade that I have for Nick is an A. And it's primary, primarily through Nick's bread and butter, which are waiver wire transactions and trading. Uh, I don't even really have to point to specific examples because Nick's style, if you've played fantasy with him over multiple seasons, which now we can all say we have, you know, in multiple leagues, across multiple sports, you know that Nick's bread and butter is absolutely churning the waiver wire, making a lot of trades throughout the season to improve his team. And this year, he's done no different. He's employed that strategy, and he has what I would very safely consider a top two team in the league. And I don't want to say, I'm not suggesting that any other one team is the best, but I think, like I said, I mentioned in my big takeaways that there are a few teams that are starting to rise to the top. I think even among that group, I think of four I might have mentioned, I think Nick is in the upper tier of that group with a definite top two team. So I give Nick an A. What do you have for Nick? Uh, I also have an A. Uh, Best team to date. Not really much to complain about here. Uh, Definitely putting together a very worthy title defense season, no matter how it turns out. Short and sweet. I like it. The next team that we have is my team. Demons in the infield. Jake, I'll let you lead off for my team because I just want to, I would rather you speak to my team first before I, I give my thoughts. I don't have a whole lot. I mean, I, I gave you an A. Um, and I think a lot of this is, it gives it, it's the recovery from the slow start that you had. Um, I know that you were actually out of the playoff picture for a number of weeks and you've recently come alive, but I think, I think you should get credit for, sort of sticking with your team and not doing like a panic complete teardown. Um, and then not only that, but also being very aggressive in improving your roster when, when you started to see the, uh, the team kind of come alive. So I, I, I give you an A, uh, great recovery from the, the slower start. And then also the, the very high profile trades. Uh, and I should mention the waivers too. Um, so I believe Kyle Wright was a was a waiver pickup. That was a very, very good ad. Yeah, uh, I have the exact same grade for my team, and this one is this one is interesting, and I, I think it's going to come off as bias, but I truly can't point to one of these three major areas that we've laid out: draft, waiver wire transactions, or trading, because I've had really big hits in all three areas. So. To highlight, I guess, some of my better picks in the draft, Spencer Strider in the 25th round, I consider a big big hit. Nestor Cortez in the 18th round. Uh, Sonny Gray in the 10th round, it really looks like he's starting to turn it on. Sandy was one of my keepers, so I'm not going to say like, oh, I did a great job drafting, but he is the number one pitcher right now in our league. Uh, Jose Ramirez, I know he, like again, that's not really a decision. That's like best player available at the third overall pick, but I guess I'm glad I didn't get cute, and it also helps that I had some really big hits late in the draft. 
you highlighted one of the guys that I picked up, Kyle Wright. Another guy that I picked up who's been crushing it for me is Nick Pavetta. Uh, Jeffrey Springs has been a guy that I've been excited about getting to add. John Birdie, a very underrated name, but he's, he's been doing nothing but contributing. Austin Hayes. So I can point to a lot of these guys that I've picked up who have who've been contributing to my team in a big way as I've been on this hot streak. But trading, you know, trading. I don't. I'm not really even going to speak to it because we obviously cover trades at length every single week that they happen. We have kind of both, or you know, whether it's you and me or me and Nick, we have liked the trades for my team that I've made in recent weeks. So I think it's really hard for me to like pinpoint any one of these three things. I think it's truly been a collaboration of these three main areas that's really helped to shift or shift my team. Sorry, shape my team and build it up to be what it is currently. The next team is Gone Forever, Eddie's team. And Jake, this is the first of kind of the in-betweeners that I said, I think that the grades that I give them suffer because I'm very, I struggle with kind of what to make of these teams, whether you know, they're better suited to go for it, whether they're better suited to sell it's very tough for me to answer personally because it's not my roster. So I think I maybe naturally, because I didn't really know what to make of them, gave them lower grades. And this was the harshest grade that I gave out of anybody in the league. I gave Eddie a D plus. And the primary reason that I gave Eddie a D plus is trading and not in the sense that he has made trades. It's actually the same, same sense as Courtney, which is that he was started he started off very hot. I believe at one point he was first in the West Division. And I think that he it's hard to know exactly. Like I'm not saying he has a crystal ball and he can see exactly how to capitalize on a good position, but the lack of effort to capitalize on his position. And even like Sam, we we said kind of missed his opportunity to buy while all of his competitors bought. I think even a team that's kind of struggling and in the middle of a skid but still wants to compete, such as Eddie, I also think that he is, I don't want to say at fault, but he missed his opportunity to also add and turn his team around during that window of seeing a lot of buyer-seller trades. So the lack of making moves to, one, capitalize on his hot start, but two, turn around his, I think now it's been five or six weeks that his team has just been falling off of a cliff after the good start. I think that that's why I have the D plus. So maybe I guess all of the, that commentary would suggest maybe he's in a better position to sell, but I think as of, as things currently stand, he might be our, our second wild card team. So that's also very hard for me to say too. So a lot of, I don't really know what to make of it leading to the poor grade, but what do you have for Eddie's team? So I sort of had similar thoughts, but I gave him a C plus because I was trying not to. I mean, the the team kind of going downhill, I think, coincides with Scherzer getting hurt. Yes. Which would make sense to me because it, it's like you said, Eddie's pitching has kind of been his pitching staff. I guess it's his starters have sort of been equivalent to Courtney's relievers. It's I, I believe he's actually starting six relievers this week. Uh, or no, five relievers. Sorry. One of them in a starting pitcher slot. Uh, and I, like, I can't say that that aren't, those aren't his best options, but his, I, I don't think that I, I agree with you about the lack of trade. Um, and I, th- I wish there was a little more effort in trying to replace, well, I guess I shouldn't say replace 
trying to stop the bleeding with Scherzer going down, seeing like how dire the pitching staff was. But uh, yeah, I, I think the inactivity there is why I would give it more of a, more of a harsher grade. Like I think his team, we, he showed his team was capable of uh, performing well early in the year. I, I think at that point, um, you got to try to capitalize it on. You got to try to capitalize on it though, rather than sit back because especially this year, and I'm sure this has been true every other year too. I think when your team is good, you, you maybe should try to be a little more aggressive in improving if you really want to uh, really want to extend. Well, I shouldn't say extend your window when you really want to um, try to win this year, because I don't think that you can assume that every other roster is going to stay as it is or close to it. Because, like all your competitors are going to get better. You need to, you need to try to get better too. So I, I think that when when you have a guy with like Scherzer sort of go down, you need to try to try to supplement the uh, the pitching a little more than you can't rely on your on just on your bench options unless you're a really really deep pitching staff. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up Max Scherzer uh, in Eddie's defense because I did give him a pretty harsh grade. Like I said, the harshest of this segment, Max Scherzer being his best player when he's healthy, going down for. He's actually coming back really ha- really fast on rehab, so that's really good for Eddie, but going down with a longer-term injury definitely crushed any momentum that his team kind of had at the beginning of the season. But again, there's also that responsibility that you mentioned to stop the bleeding. Uh, you know, Managers run into adversity with injuries or crazy things like last year, JC had Trevor Bauer put on the administrative leave in the middle of the season, and then he never pitched again. Like That's, that's the adversity of fantasy. You got to find a way to bounce back from that. And so far he just hasn't done that. Um, but there's certainly still plenty of time for him to turn it around. I actually don't know when our trade deadline is this year, Jake, do you know off the top of your head? I have yet to set it, but I thought we had agreed last year to make it the same day as the MLB trade deadline. So I was, I, I just assumed we would always have it July 31st. That works for me i think that that makes things very exciting both i mean the, real the trade deadline fantasy it's not going to matter as much without the trade limit anyways because you you can trade whenever you want and with no cost so i mean i did i really i honestly didn't think it was a huge no. deal when we had it like because i know in the past we've always tried to make sure that enough people were available so that everybody could participate and it was a really crazy time but i i think those days are behind us yeah, I mean, I think that last year's, probably because the real-life MLB trade deadline was actually insane, like one of the best that has ever happened in, in MLB history. But I thought that the combination of those two things made it super fun, so I'm all for that, and I think I do remember that you're correct, that we did agree to have it on. Mimic the real-life trade deadline. Um, so still, like, like I said, Freddie, plenty of time, over a month to turn it around as far as the trade market being open, open to him. The next team that we have is the NFTs, JC's team. I gave JC a B. Uh, I think JC has been a solid manager for our league since it has started. He is always in contention, you know, never throwing in the towel too early. Like JC is, while he hasn't made a championship appearance or anything like that yet, he is exploring, you know, 
the route of competing until he can't any longer. And this year is no different. But the thing that I like about this year for JC, even if it hasn't worked out perfectly for him so far, he is in third place in the tough East division, but I would say, uh, you know, not necessarily threatening to kind of shoot up there with, with Nick's team or challenge for first place in his division. What I have liked, despite some of that tough luck and not shooting upward is the trading, the willingness to make moves and kind of reshape his team on the fly this year. That is something that is new for me to see from JC. And so I think where, you know, naturally just looking at his team and not considering anything else, maybe I give the team like a B minus. I think that he gets a slight bump for me because he has shown the willingness to change it up as he sees fit. What do you have for JC? Give him a B plus. Uh, I think he had a really good draft, despite not really having a terrific keeper pool. He had some, he had some guys, but the, the keeper pool I don't think was a step above. But still had a really good draft. Found a really good waiver pitcher with Perez. Uh, I don't think that you. That's not like even if you have one one hit on waivers all year, Perez has been good enough where I think that I that, that justifies as you could say that he's had a good performance on waivers. And then uh, the trades being more aggressive than we have seen in the past. I, I do like that. Um, I know that he had some tough luck with the with the trade with Mike. Um, you know, Tyon and Detmers got back Rendon and Iglesias. You couldn't re- – I mean, I know that we, we've talked about Rendon and how bad a contract that is and all that stuff. But like, you, you, just, you don't ever predict that you're going to lose a player for an entire year. That's just – you don't – you can't predict that or count on that happening. So – I'm not really penalizing him for that one. That's just kind of tough luck. But I do like being more aggressive with trades. Uh, had a good draft and landed a pitcher on what not really much to hate here. I think the reason that what's keeping him from an A is kind of like it's kind of what you said. Um, the roster just isn't quite there. Jake, the next team that we have is your team, Jake's fantasy baseball team. I gave you an A minus and surprisingly like compared to the good teams that you have had historically in our league usually it's due to to the draft like i've always considered you to be among the very best drafters in our league because you're consistent with it but this year i think the mantle belongs to trading uh the one that happened this week certainly helps that <laughs> you know winning that i guess the the primary factor prize for this segment but I guess where I'm not, where I'm failing to give you an A as opposed to the A minus that I gave you is you kind of already alluded to it earlier in the in the episode, but I think there are still some holes that you have failed to address even with the increased activity on the trade market for you. So like third base, I know you have Chris Bryan and you were kind of hoping for the best for that coming into the year. Maybe maybe he still does come back and is a difference maker, but currently riding Josh Rojas, none of your recent trades have really addressed that. And the bullpen, I think, is another area like Craig Kimbrell is kind of having an off year. I'm not sure whether I count on him kind of bouncing back and being an elite reliever, although he certainly could and has the pedigree to do so. But starting Sir Anthony Dominguez, AJ Minter, that's those are just guys that in a vacuum you wouldn't like to have to start, you know, if you if you could have the choice to start more quality options. I know that that sounded completely redundant, but I think you get what I'm picking up, right? Free agency waiver ads for your bullpen is just not an ideal place to be. The last thing that I'll point out, which is like, 
this may sound contradictory, but I think that you are very, very, very deep at starting pitching. Probably, if not the deepest in the league, probably tied for the deepest starting pitching depth in our league. But I don't think that that means that you have the best starting pitching rotation in our league. So I think where you have a ton of depth, I think that your only true ace is Justin Verlander. And I think the championship, I know that Tony Gonsolin has been really awesome this year. I just have my doubts about how much volume he'll get on a per start basis, which he's making me eat my words because one, two, three, four, five, six of his last seven starts, he's gone at least six innings. So I do like to see that. But if you also look at his pitch count in those starts, 87 pitches, 86 pitches, 84 pitches, 89 pitches, 92, 90, 92, 84, 65. He has to be extremely efficient to go six innings. And maybe he continues to do that. But I'm just leery of a pitcher that's not given a full workload in terms of pitch count at its core. Because I like a guy that, even if they're going to get blown up in a start, the manager's going to let him go 100 pitches so he can kind of accrue the volume to make up for some of those bad starts. So that's my only concern with Gonsolin, not to single him out, but I did want to kind of justify why I don't consider him a fantasy ace yet. So all that being said, Justin Verlander, I would consider your only ace. And I think championship-level teams have multiple aces, two at a minimum. But I think more commonly you see the teams that end up winning it all having probably three or four ace or near-ace-level pitchers. And I just, even though you have a ton of quality options at the starting pitcher position, I'm only seeing one ace on your team. So I think that those, for those reasons, that's why you get the A-. minus, A high grade, but not quite the highest. What do you got for your own team? Surprised you went that high with the grade. I gave myself a B. This B. is that's pretty low. Yeah, it is low because this. I mean, it feels like this team is kind of underachieved. But uh, I, I don't know. I just like I, I've been. I think I've been okay on waivers. I don't really. I don't really have like a a great hit, but I have a couple impact guys that I got like Ward. I know I, I just traded Anderson, but uh, he was definitely. Um, a big help in trying to stem those early season pitching woes that I had. Um, and McGill, I still liked, but he's kind of, he's his like whole right side of his body sort of blew out. And now um, he's on the injured list, but we'll move past him. He was good. But he was good before. I'm very uh, sad about <laughs> Tyler McGill. Cause I was, I was like, I was super excited with you about Tyler McGill. We've, you know, there's more, dynasty context to this conversation and what everybody else knows but you and i have talked when he was healthy about how good we thought we might you know he might have been so that's been really disappointing to watch yeah it's been sad watching him watching his body just completely implode but uh yeah so i I think i've been okay on waivers i did i do want to throw out that i did drop eric lauer which is a big whiff for me i know that he's kind of turned into a pumpkin recently but Still, that would have been how he would have been very helpful to have for a number of weeks. Uh, I think I'm spite the rosters kind of still in it, but it definitely feels like it's a tier below the title contenders. Like you said, I have not really been able to address. I mean, I, I will tell you, it's not from a lack of trying, but I have not really been able to address the major hole of third base or I, I, like I, I, I agree with you. My pitching staff right now is definitely quantity over quality and I have a lot of guys that are sort of in that like pretty good tier rather than the great tier I still like Kevin Gosman I think he can be in the 
Um, I think he could move up to that ace tier for sure. I still have him in my top 10 pitchers. He's his velocity's up. I'm more, I'm more, I guess like I'm more inclined to think that this is just a rut he's in right now rather than what he will be the rest of the season. But like his peripherals still look really good and velocity's up. So I'm still a believer in him. But I do agree with you overall that the, um, the pitching staff is lacking. And this is just, and I guess this is another one where I sort of penalize myself based on past performance because this, like, this team doesn't even really resemble the ways of the teams that I've had in the past. In that, like, when I think back on, on my good teams, like, these are just, these are not even built the same way. Mm-hmm. And so, for I, I think for that reason, and for, well, not just that reason, but for that number of reasons. I only give myself You're out. here. I'm out. For that reason, I'm out. <laughs> I reason I'm out on this team. But I'm in because it's my team and I can't do anything about it. Yeah, G- Gosman <laughs> is a guy that I didn't mention. I am a long-term believer in Gosman. I think that he will be fine and likely by the end of this season. I guess he's a guy that I probably shouldn't have glossed over, but did. <laughs> he's a good he's a good one, a good example to bring up of a guy that could develop into what you're your pitching rotation needs is another ace. I mean, he was that up until a couple starts ago. He's just he's just in a slump, like you mentioned. The next team is Team Positivity, Jerwin's team. I gave Jerwin a C plus, primarily due to the draft. Um, I do like Jerwin's keepers, Tariq Skubal. I know he has Degrom. Tim or he he traded away Tim Anderson, didn't he? No, Tim Anderson is on Jerwin's team. Sorry, I am not looking at his roster. He has a couple more guys that I like, too, that I can't think of right now, but I'm flipping over. Ty France could be a potentially good keeper. Uh, Michael Kopech. Grayson Rodriguez, I'm a little bit lower on him, but this is the guy that I'm very excited about is Tyler Glass now. Jerwin next year will have him in the 13th round. So there's things that Jerwin has done that I like, but I think, again, his overall team grade for me suffers a little bit because it's hard for me to to make out what he should do with the team, whether he should kind of go full-fledged one way or the other. And so I guess the second contributing factor to the lower ranking or the lower grade is the draft. Darwin had, in my opinion, a pretty miserable draft. He got Trey Turner and Lucas Giolito, which Lucas Giolito has given up 30 runs over his last five starts for anybody that's counting. I know he's on Jordan's team now, but obviously not you you know what you would hope to get out of a second round pick Luis Castillo who's not on his team anymore Kevin Gosman who's not on his team anymore Jacob deGrom who hasn't thrown a pitch this season in MLB like in a live action game Grayson Rodriguez who got hurt Uh, David Bednar has been a bright spot and Tariq Skubal has been a huge hit for Jerwin but I have only mentioned the players with high pedigree there are 15 players on Jerwin's board right now that I'm looking at from our draft recap that they are all drops or near drops or you don't expect them to contribute to your team for long if you have them. And so I don't I don't necessarily mean to trash Jerwin's draft, but this is probably the worst draft looking at it on June 22nd um, that I can see in our entire league. So I think that's those are the two things that are dragging the grade down, even though I do like the keepers that he has accrued via trade this season. What do you have for Jerwin? I also picked a C plus, but I will. I want to say that this Jerowins was probably the toughest to grade for me because, like, I kind of 
this always sort of felt like this was going to be a rebuilding year for him because of how terrible the keeper pool was coming in. Just it put him at such a disadvantage compared to everybody else. So, I mean, he didn't do any, he didn't, I don't think he did himself any favors with the draft, but like, and one of the keepers was his first round pick. Like, that's not always a bad thing, but you're not, you're also not accruing any more studs to go with it. He came into the year with only two in Jesse Winker and Trey Turner. And that was it. And then I guess he, he picked up Kevin Gosman in the expansion draft, which was, I, I think was a good move, but you're still leaving yourself pretty lacking in the keeper in the keeper department, especially compared to everybody else. So I, I always sort of thought this was going to be a rebuilding year for him. Um, I I do really like the keepers that he's he's accumulated. Um, I think that they're they're good, but uh, I don't know. I, I couldn't since since I know that he wasn't like this wasn't part of the plan. You know, like I can't. I can't really give him any higher than a C plus because I know that like coming into the year, it was trying, was trying to compete. Even though for like, from my vantage point, this sort of always looked like a rebuilding year. So I can't really, you know what I'm saying? I can't give yeah. him, I can't really like give him extra bonus points based on his keeper pool. Now, even though, because I know that wasn't the plan coming in. Like I can't just, I can't disregard the the poor start. The only thing I'll add, which I don't, I don't want to, tear down his draft even more, but I have to say it. Adalberto Mondesi in the third round might be the single worst pick ever made in our league's history. I don't have a metric for that in the league history file, so I can't, I can't confirm. He's, I, has Jerwin even... I'm sure he started him, but I don't know. Like, Did he get hurt before the season even started? Like, I, I don't he got know. hurt really early. But I mean, even if he didn't get hurt, like... Ugh. That was just a pick that I remember seeing and thinking, like, "Oh man, that's brutal." <laughs> I'm sorry, Jerwin. I just that 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 particular pick was like, maybe that's what's sullying me on the entire draft was just Adalberto Mondesi in the third round. <laughs> Nobody should draft Adalberto Mondesi because you're gonna get like five that's, games that, out of that's, him. That's <laughs> that's my point. Like, I wouldn't have even drafted Mondesi. Uh-huh. Period. Like not even in the twenty sixth round. Not even there's no hesitation with me saying I would not draft him in any round, let alone with your one of your first three picks. That was that was crazy for me to see. But enough with Jerwin. Uh the next the second to last team is Brendan, ass in the jackpot. The team grade that I have for Brendan is a B minus, primarily due to the keepers that he has netted via trade and based on his draft. So I do like the first three players that he, like he kind of went safety early. We've talked about that before. Mookie Betts, Paul Goldschmidt, Trevor Story, who had a very slow start to the season, but he's on your team, Jake, now turning it around. He had a good pick with Kershaw in the fifth round, even though he did get hurt at a certain point. He had good keepers, Chris Bassett, Luis Severino, Freddie Peralta. Drew Rasmussen was a good hit. Of course, Byron Buxton. George Kirby was a great pick late in terms of just the potential that he offered as a trade chip. So I actually liked Brendan's draft. I think things didn't go his way very quickly in terms of the amount of injuries that that his team faced, particularly in the starting pitching rotation. I do like the keepers that he has now after deciding to sell. Uh, those being primarily Jordan Alvarez, who I love as a keeper, Joe Musgrove is the other super keeper. I love him. 
Uh, Luis Severino has been very good this year. And then I believe Shane Baz and Freddie Peralta were both drafted in the 12th round. So that is a luxury. I mean, I, it sucks that you don't get to keep both of those guys, but the fact that that's your fourth keeper, you're deciding between those two guys, that would excite me a lot if I'm Brendan. So at this point, he's likely just looking for a fifth keeper. And I really like his top four keeper options. So all that to say, Brendan's grade for me is a B minus. What do you got? I gave him a B. Um, I I didn't have too many differing thoughts. Like I like you, you kind of spell out his keeper pool. I really like his keeper pool. And, and if Brent, if uh, Brian Reynolds turns it around, maybe that is his last keeper because I know that he was drafted pretty late. Um. I also wanted to give him credit, though, because he did a very good job on waivers. He was able to pick up McNeil, Heaney, Pena, and Morrell. Is that how you pronounce it? Yep. Um, all of these guys, I know that he traded a lot of them, but all of them have turned into impact players in the sense where you can pretty much safely start them week in and week out. And uh, I think that that's pretty much all you, you can really ask for out of a waiver player, and he was able to do this four times. Um. So yeah, I I do like his his keepers. I liked his I liked his job the job he did on waivers. Um, I guess the reason like I, I don't want to say that I'm penalizing him for a bad start, but like I just I, I wasn't crazy about his draft. I think that might have hurt him a little bit. Also, being on here, I I don't think we we mentioned. Oh, I guess you did mention Shane Bass. I love Shane Bass. I. He was actually one of the guys I really wanted to get from Brendan if I was going to trade Alvarez, but alas, that did not happen. I'm glad that uh, it didn't because I also really like Shane Baz. Yeah, but uh, I think he's going to be a very good keeper for him. So I think Brendan will be set up really nicely for next year. He just needs to be able to capitalize with a good draft and uh, maybe get some some better luck early in the season. No, it's out of your control, but you need both. You need to, you need to be good and lucky. I think it's better to be lucky than good. But yes, I agree. You need to be both to find consistent, sustained success. The last team, but certainly not least, is the dean himself, the Walk Institute of Research, Jordan. And for Jordan's team, even though I put him in the upper echelon, the, I think the four teams that I named at the beginning of the episode, I don't necessarily think that he has like the strongest team in the league, despite the results so far. But I am still giving Jordan an A, primarily due to trading. Jordan has went out and added... I, I know Lucas Giolito has been awful, but he does still have very high pedigree, so I'm going to throw him, throw him in here. Lucas Giolito, Shane Bieber, which... I won't necessarily highlight that as like, a, oh, look at Jordan. He added Shane Bieber because he gave up McClanahan to do it, who's the number two pitcher overall right now. But again, just willingness to, to make adjustments to his team as he sees fit. Tyler Anderson, he just recently got from you. Mookie Betts. There was another one. Jordan Montgomery. I don't know. I didn't say him already, did I? You did not. Jordan Montgomery, I think, is a very underrated ad. He's been awesome this year. And, uh, he was not even the best part of that trade for Jordan. Who, you know, he got monkey bets. I know he gave up a lot, as Nick and I talked about, to do it, trading away Musgrove. But I just really like Jordan's propensity to add to a competitive team this year. Even if every trade hasn't been a slam dunk value-wise, I, I just like that mindset. I gravitate towards that kind of winning mindset. Like, I'm going to go for it. 
Uh, I don't want to say throw caution to the wind because you always want to kind of keep your cards close to the vest. You don't want to empty the tank in case you don't win. But I think Jordan's done a nice job of balancing that. He still has some nice keepers, but he's also went out and added some big-time talent. So due to primarily tra- primarily due to train it, trading, Jordan gets an A for me. What do you have for Jordan's team? I also gave him an A, and it's a lot for, like you said, I think that he's his, the way that he's going about this year, seeing that the window's open, I got a, I got a really good roster. I'm going to go for it. I really, I really like that. And I think it's paid. I think the increase in, in research has paid off. Had a good draft. Uh, I know he came in with a good keeper pool. And like, I, I like the idea that I might not get this good of a keeper pool again. I'm not going to waste this opportunity. Like I'm going to put in the work and really, really do the research this year. So I think that the roster is good. It's I don't. I guess it, maybe it, it maybe it's not quite as good on paper as some of these other teams, but I mean I don't think it's very far behind. And he's been scoring up there with the best of them, so I can't really knock him there. Uh, I don't really. I mean, I, if this roster doesn't look like it has a lot of holes, maybe the maybe the pitching staff a little bit, but yeah, that's it's not too bad. So I think that he. I, I still think he has room to. Improved too. He's still got some chips to move if he if he would choose to um, to get better. And I like I said, I really like the aggressiveness from him trying to to capitalize on the on the window that he has and the on the team that he has. So that is your mid season team grade segment. Hopefully, everybody everyone enjoyed. Uh, I really enjoyed just talking through all of that with you. So matchup preview. Looking ahead to week eleven. Getting pretty deep into the season, Jake. What is your thing to watch for this week? Uh, us pirate fans finally have something to watch where I might actually turn on a pirate game instead of MLB TV. And that's O'Neill Cruz, who can't get it, who we, who can't get excited about a six seven shortstop who throws upper ninety mile an hour bullets across the infield and just hits absolute moonshots. With and, and runs the fastest time. on the team. <laughs> like, who can't get excited about this guy? Like, I, even some of the, I know that we've had like, you know, we have a Brian Hayes and Ryan Reynolds who are also who are also good, but like, he, it is really O'Neill. Can't even say it. O'Neill Cruz is really exciting. Yeah, and it's been a, like he's just such a unique player. It's it's really fun. He's really fun to watch. And I'm excited. And I'm, that's why he is my thing to watch for. This is the guy that when prospect evaluators say, you know, a player has loud tools, very athletic, it's sometimes hard to discern what that means when you're thinking of a prospect that you don't ever get to watch because who watches minor league baseball? O'Neill Cruz embodies what prospect evaluators mean when they use the phrases loud tools, athletic, electric. I agree with you, Jake. He's just an exciting player to watch. He is, I wouldn't say any better than the other high pedigree prospects that have debuted this year and in recent years. But I do think that he is the most exciting just based on, you know, how hard he can hit the ball, how fast he can run, how hard he can throw the ball, how like freakishly tall he is. It's just really fun to watch. So totally agree. But my thing to watch for is the beast of the East versus the best of the West, the executors of a Shane for a Shane, Nick versus Jordan. 
I think, Jake, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we are nearing the end of our interdivision play. So I am personally staking that this matchup is the one that is going to determine which division gets bragging rights for the remainder of the season. You know, first place in the East versus first place in the best. The question is, Jake, should I cheer for bragging rights for my division or should I cheer for Jordan to get throttled in hopes that I jump him for first place in our division? See, now that statement makes me really sad because that just means that the Jordan-Nate rivalry, which should be really on fire right now, isn't. And that makes me sad. Yeah, that's a good point. Jordan and I were were heated for a number of seasons, but right now when we're actually very closely competing alongside one another, yeah, it is not too hot. You're right. Although Jordan, I think, suggested that we should bring it back. I was talking to him a couple weeks ago. Yeah, bring it back. I agree. I'm hoping Jordan gets crushed in this matchup. <laughs> matchup predictions. My record is now getting better, 19 and 23. Jake, you are inverse of that. You're 23 and 19, so kind of bouncing back, having a decent season. The guest, despite uh, a poor two weeks over our last couple episodes, is still 26 and 16, so still leading the pack. But no guest this week. Let's see if we can catch up. First matchup of the week. It's Freedom All-Stars versus the Walk Institute of Research. Who do you have in this one, Jake? I pick Nick, so I think he gets McClanahan and Freed twice, and Jordan does not get any such luck with his pitchers. And he just locks Mookie Betts, which is really tough. I also chose Freedom All-Stars to win this matchup. So take that, Jordan. The second <laughs> matchup of the week, Team Positivity versus Weak Pullout Hitter. Who do you have in this one, Jake? Uh, Sam. Gotta be Sam. That's also my pick. Third matchup of the week, Big Money Mike versus Ass in the Jackpot. Mike versus Brendan. Who are you picking in this third matchup, Jake? I'm taking Brendan here. I am also taking Ass in the Jackpot, so we are three for three on making the same picks. Fourth matchup of the week, Team C-Deemer versus the NFTs. This one was a little tough for me to choose. I ended up going with JC, the NFTs. Who do you have in this matchup? I went the other way and picked Courtney. Fifth matchup of the week, Jake's fantasy baseball team versus Gone Forever. Eddie has been on a very long skid. I don't think that this is the week that changes. I have Jake's fantasy baseball team winning. How about you? I also have my team winning this one. Hopefully the the new look squad um, can pull it off. I almost, in a desperate measure, changed my logo really? by, inver- by inverting the colors mm. just, to, just to shake it up. That's how far I almost went. But you went with the Courtney tried and true method of not doing a thing. That's right. She bounced. She broke out of the slump so and didn't change the team name to do it, or I guess the logo either. She still has the, the, custo- or the, the default fan tracks team hat logo. It's amazing. There's also, I mean, there was some, there was some spite behind that that uh, there probably isn't on my end, but hopefully that doesn't factor into the equation. Might have to change your team to Jake's Commanders now that <laughs> the Washington football team rebranded. Last matchup of the week: Demons in the infield versus Team No Name. My team versus Scotts. I'm going with my team in this matchup. How about you? I am also going with your team. All right, Jake, I'm going to kick it over to you for our league history fact of the week. I mean, this was an easy one. We already said it. The great defensive battle of our time. 
which was this past week. It was a grinding battle, uh, really low scoring. Defense wins championships, so really this will be your championship matchup. It's going to be me versus Gerald. Okay, calling your shot. News and notes, Jake. This is going to be a lengthy one because a lot has happened since last week. Mookie Betts was placed on the injured list with a cracked rib. Jake, is it fair to say that Mookie Betts is just as injury prone as Mike Trout at this point? Maybe it's just because I, I like I haven't had Mookie Betts on really any fantasy teams ever. Maybe I just don't notice when he gets hurt. But Mike Trout feels like he is hurt way more often than Betts is. Maybe I think, I'm wrong on that. Though. I feel like I've had Mookie Betts on my team at least two of the last three years at certain points, and I feel like he goes on these IL stints at least once per year, sometimes twice per year. And it's just so frustrating. Like I'm sure Jordan, Jordan, after paying so much to get him, giving up Joe Musgrove, has to be super frustrated right now. Like this is obviously not going to be a long term injury. Like he will be back in a few weeks, but it's just so frustrating, man. The second piece of news, Manny Machado looked to suffer a gruesome ankle injury after rolling it really badly on first base on Sunday. Like the video that I watched was looking out at the field from the first base dugout and it straight up looked like he snapped his ankle. Like it looked like his foot was like hanging off the ankle. So I thought, oh shoot, because I have him in, you know, Nick has him in our league, but I have him in dynasty. But two days later, however, he was reported to have been walking perfectly normal after x-rays came back negative, no walking boot, anything like that. And despite not coming back and playing in a game yet since that injury on Sunday, the Padres have not put Manny Machado on the injured list. So Jake, what is more miraculous? The fact that Manny Machado is somehow just fine from this, or is it Zach Gallon's magical healing abilities? So I don't think it's either one of these things. I think that his ankle actually did snap, but they they replaced it with a, they just amputated it, right? Oh, and okay. replaced they replaced it with a so you know how like Winter Soldier has a bionic arm? They did yeah. that, but just with his ankle. So Manny Machado has a vibranium ankle. Yeah, but we're never going to know because he doesn't wear, for one thing, baseball players wear pants. So right. we'll really never know for sure. We can just kind of assume that I'm right because, I mean, how else would he come back so soon? And Machado's not a knee-high socks kind of guy. No, so it's going to be hidden underneath those baggy pants. Jake, what's your stance on knee-high socks? I think that they're fine for like kids or like high school or even college. But I think once you get to the MLB, wear your pants. Wear pants the normal way. I can't say that I agree with you because I was always a high pants wearer. Yeah, up but through high school. Yeah, but you weren't. You weren't an MLB player. I don't have a problem with it. I think you like you show a little bit more color that way. Some now they got these fancy stance socks that you with like stripes and the patterns on it. Just get a little like get a little crazy. Like I love me some Pablo Lopez, but the one flaw for Pablo Lopez is that he wears high pants. So I guess like you wouldn't ever roster a player that wears stirrups. Like that's just that's way too far. Well, I think he does wear stirrups. Oh, does he wear stirrups? I, yeah, I he wears seen. he wears like the funky socks. Pretty sure those are the stirrups. Yeah, it's it. I don't know. It just to me, I'm like you could look so much better if you just wore your baseball pants the normal way. If you're in a, if you're a major league baseball player, 
Anyway, Brandon Woodruff looked dominant in his first rehab start back from experiencing symptoms of Raynaud syndrome, which is numbness in the fingers, as we discussed previously. He pitched two and two-thirds innings, and he struck out seven of the eight batters that he put away. He made this start, this rehab start at AAA. And he appears to be on track to return to the Brewers next week after one more rehab start planned for later this week. Jake, are we treating Woodruff like it's business as usual, even though... Sorry, yeah. Are we just are we treating him at this point like it's business as usual? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think he's fine. I lowered him a little bit before. Just like he'd been more hittable than we're used to seeing. But like, I don't think there was anything that was so off that I don't think he could be an ace anymore. Like, I still think he's very good. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, like, I think it'll be fine. I don't know enough about what is what is it, Rain- Reynolds syndrome, or what what is it? I I don't know how it's pronounced, but it looks like Reynolds syndrome i like i don't know enough about it to to say whether it would affect him long term and it doesn't seem like anybody is saying that it will so i'll just i'm just trusting people who probably know more about it than me well you must not have been reading the content that was put out right after the news dropped because people were saying thoracic outlet syndrome people were saying this is terrible for brandon woodruff so even though it looks like now that he is going to be fine, do you think that that temporary panic was justified given the type of issue that was being reported, this this syndrome that potentially gives numbness in the fingers? I mean, that sounds really bad for a pitcher. Right. right. <laughs> it's like feel is so much of the – feel has so much to do with pitching. Like we can't – we don't even quantify that because like I – so I'll, I always point back to – uh, like I know that a lot, of the, a lot of people in the fantasy industry were talking for a long time about like Zach Eflin is a potential breakout candidate because his curveball was so good, and they're like, oh, all he has to do is throw his curveball more. And then he comes, he he goes on some podcast and he's talking in an interview about how pregame determines how much he's going to throw his curveball because sometimes he just doesn't have the feel for it. So. He just decides before a game in warmups whether he has the feel for the curveball that day, and that kind of determines how much he's going to throw it. That's sort of like we can't quantify those things. It, feel has so much to do with pitching that like anytime when you're messing with that, it is kind of a little scary. So you do think that like the temporary panic was partially justified? Yeah, like when you're talking like numbness in the fingers as a pitcher, like yeah, that's. That's not good. All right. Let me riddle you this, Jake. I know that this is going a little bit off topic and it's actually going outside the scope of our league, but I'm going to give you an example of panic playing itself out in a tangible move. When this news came out, a couple days after actually, I traded to Mike in a dynasty league, Will Smith, the catcher for the Dodgers, Daniel Bard, Cole Irvin, the starter for the Athletics, and then two kind of like big hype teenage prospects, Khalil Watson and Jason Dominguez. I got Woodruff and Kybert Ruiz for for that for those players that I gave up. Do you think that that was panic? Do you think that that seems okay even if Woodruff wasn't hurt? What what are your thoughts on that? I, I'd rather have the guys that are good right now. So I'd rather take Woodruff and Ruiz. I mean, I, I think Will Smith is better than. Ruiz is long term. I feel the same way, but yeah, like I'd rather have, I'd rather have Woodruff. There's still plenty of time for like I I kind of view 
dynasty prospects in the sense that like, I don't really want many guys that are like in the a ball lower levels, even if they are, even if they are regarded as elite prospects, because there is so much time for stuff to go wrong. Like how many times have you seen it? Have you, have you seen a guy in the lower levels where he, he gets to triple A or double A and starts to struggle. And all of a sudden he's not regarded as an elite prospect anymore. And maybe never even makes it to the majors. It's just, I, I don't know. I just don't, I don't like trying to project that far ahead, I guess. Sure. Yeah, I was just curious to kind of put like pen to paper, give you an actual example of how that, you know, panic may have played itself out just to get your thoughts on it. But we will move on from Brandon Woodruff. Liam Hendricks was placed on the injured list with a forearm flexor strain right after I freaking traded for him. And he was given an initial three-week timeline to return. He started a throwing program already this past Monday. Jake, are there reasons to be concerned with Liam Hendricks for this season? Or do you think that this is kind of the appropriate rest and rehab plan given the nature of the injury? Which, again, it's a forearm flexor, which is on the opposite side of the UCL which is that's that's the ligament that people get Tommy John for. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't he one? Didn't he just come out and say that he's been pitching with like a some elbow issue for a couple of years? I am not aware of that. I'm not going to say that you're wrong because I don't I don't know if you're wrong, but I can't confirm it either. OK, I, I thought I remember reading that, but I mean, I, I don't know for sure. Maybe it was somebody else. I thought it was him, but. Uh, I mean, yeah, this seems fine. I, I don't really have any concerns about Hendricks long-term. Ozzy Albies broke his foot. That sucks. We're going to move does. on from that. Uh, Fernando Tatis had a bone scan that did not show the level of healing that the Padres had hoped for, and his timeline has been pushed back. But I said at first that no further information has been reported, but the news actually came out today that he has been swinging for – Basically two months now, but about like 40%. They basically said just no intense swinging, no full effort swings. I guess that's encouraging. But Jake, is the most responsible decision to make as a fantasy manager at this point, like say if you're competing, to just treat Tatis like a lost cause for the 2022 season? So you're saying like, okay, so so for me, if I'm going to try to trade for him, right, because I don't have him. Like I'm not offering really anything. I don't want to say anything of value, but I'm not really offering a whole lot because there's no timetable, and there's not really any indication that he's close to coming back. And we already know that wrist injuries are a problem for hitters, in that they don't really they kind of sap the power, and the guy and guys just don't look the same for a while. So I, I like I think the most responsible thing to do with Tatis like from Mike's perspective is to just hold up until like you're already, you're not going to get anything for him right now. I think if he, if he would have gotten something, he would have like, he wouldn't be on Mike's team anymore. Mm-hmm. Basically just hold as long as you can hope that there's good news. If there isn't, Oh, well, if you can move him for anything closer to the trade deadline, I think that's probably the most responsible thing for Mike to do because like, you're not going to get anything for him right now. I was like, this is this seems like the lowest he could possibly be, like Tatis, where there's no timetable. Injuries are pro- are still a problem. Like the injury is a big problem, and there's like there's like there's no indication he's going to come back and be the same. 
Sure. Jumping back quickly, a week ago today, an article came out that White Sox closer Liam Hendricks says that he's had a torn UCL since 2008. <laughs> so you were right. Well, okay then. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's pretty nuts. That's, that's literally what pitchers get Tommy John surgery to correct as a torn UCL. I guess he's been pitching for or pitching with it for almost 15 years now. That's very interesting. Got to be partially torn. I know Tanaka did that for a while. Yeah. He had a, but I don't think it was 15 years. Yeah, I, I have no idea. <laughs> Anthony Rendon underwent season-ending surgery on his wrist. Maybe Tati should do that. <laughs> but since signing a seven-year, $245 million contract with the Angels in 2020, Rendon has played less than a full season's worth of games, and he has undergone season-ending surgeries twice in the three seasons that he's been with the Angels. Jake, is this the worst contract in baseball aside from Steven, Steven Strasburg's, which actually is the exact same contract, seven years, $245 million. I found that to be pretty interesting. Yeah, it might be. Like, Rondon's not even a younger guy, so I, I can't even... Like, I, think, I feel like this injury stuff is only going to get worse with him. The Angels, like, there must just be some rule where the Angels have to have at least one bad contract on the roster to function. Because I feel like they've had a bad contract on the books, like, as far back as I can remember. Yeah. Because you got your, I'm thinking, so Rendon now, they had Justin Upton before. And Pujols. And Pujols. Before Pujols, I guess it was, I guess it was around the same time. They brought over Josh Hamilton, who they only recently stopped paying. Uh, Then they, before him, it was Vernon Wells. If we could remember, that was way back. Also a very bad contract. Like they just, they must have to have at least one of them on the books for them to even be like, I, I don't, I don't understand why they, how this happens where they always seem to have at least one of these just, and it's not like just a bad contract. It's like awful, maybe like awful top three worst contracts in the league sort of, sort of business for like all these guys. And I know that this might be a hot take now or like controversial to say now, but I have no doubt in my mind that at least the last three years of Mike Trout's contract are going to be horrendously bad for the angels i don't know how you value that though because like when you pay a guy that much you're paying for the for, for the front half and you know that like, you they know that he's not going to be the same guy when he's that old and he's not going to be worth that money but you know that when you're going in so i don't know if i can necessarily say that's going to be a bad contract i mean i guess you could say the same thing about the pools contract but that was kind of the idea but Pujols was really never the same guy for them that he was with the Cardinals. So that was that one, I think, is one that's that was always a bad contract. Same thing with Josh Hamilton and uh, Vernon Wells before him. I, I don't know that I can. And I, that looks like the way the Rendon's contract is ending up right now. So that's why I don't think that I can say that the Trout contract would be in the same category because the front years, they're at least getting kind of what they paid for in the sense that the front years are going to be still going to be elite. Jake, you'll have to remind me. I don't want to talk about it now because I know we're already putting out a pretty beefy episode here. But at some point, we have to talk about what we think that Shohei Otani might get on the open market. I think that would be a really interesting conversation. I just, I, I just hope that he doesn't go back to the Angels. It's, it's they're just such a bad organization. Like, how did I know that we, you put the like that? It wasn't a meme, but I think it was Jarwin put it in the put the post in the 
the baseball group chat about how yeah, the tweet. him and him and him and Trout are doing unreal things every night. And the Angels are still losing like sixty-two. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like every night, and it feels like it's been like this forever with the Angels, and there's no there's no end in sight. Agreed. The last piece of news we have already talked about, but we're going to talk about it again because we finally have something as Pirate fans to be excited about. Pirates top prospect O'Neill Cruz was called up on Monday, making his 2022 season debut. I, you know, note that I say not his MLB debut because if you remember, he actually had a cup of coffee in September last year and he did pretty well. And I think he only played two games, but he is now up with the team and in two at bats, he recorded the hardest hit ball on the team, the fastest sprint speed, and the hardest thrown ball of all Pirates position players this season. And as a matter of fact, that throw was the hardest throw made of any infielder in all of Major League Baseball this season. Doesn't really matter, but it's just kind of like a fun fact. Again, it makes, you know, it's part of what makes him exciting, right? Jake, what are your personal expectations for, for O'Neill Cruz this season? Like, do you think that he has potential, like a, a realistic shot at winning rookie of the year? Um, probably not because he hasn't been like, I, I think to win, to win rookie of the year would have to be like a 99th percentile outcome for him, which I don't really think is in the cards because that's unfair to just expect that of him. Um, he's already, he, the, the thing is though, he's, he's already missed so much time being in the Myers. I mean, it's not really his fault, but I think he's going to lose out to guys that had more volume and started in the majors. What are your expectations for Cruz long-term and which players that are currently in the, in the majors would you compare his skill set to? Well, that's a tough, that's a tough one. Um, I'll I'll, I'll answer the first part of it just to give you an idea of what I think. I'm not going to answer the the expectations piece, but his skill set to me kind of reminds me of an Aaron Judge Byron Buxton hybrid. I know that that is those are two very lofty players to kind of combine into one, but I just can't help but think that those are like the tools that O'Neill Cruz has is the cross between those two guys. Yeah, that, that's actually kind of what I was thinking. I see. I was originally going to say Judge. Like I'm not not just with the size, but the fact that they hit the ball so hard and the slugging percentage should be up there, but I believe that he's faster than judge is judge yes. is probably a better defender. Um, I think that judge also will probably have him beat with a hit tool. Cruz still had like his swing is still a little loopy. Um, not to bring back any like bad memories of Gregory Polanco, but uh, I, I think that, Cruz, at least early on, might struggle with in the batting average department. I think he's going to put up really outrageous slugging and power numbers, but uh, like I think that the realistic expectation for him is maybe like 240 to 260 at best, at least early on. Yeah, the way I like I, to think of it is he has judges' size and power, but he has the speed and on-base skills of Byron Buxton but cannot play defense like either of those two guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I agree with that. That's probably the best way to put it. I, I don't think he's real. I don't think he's a real plate discipline machine like judges. I mean, judge strikes out a lot, but he also gets on base a ton too. Like, I don't yeah, think that, that O'Neill Cruz is going to be making up for the swing and miss in his game by being a very high OBP guy like Aaron judges. Yeah, that that's kind of where I'm at with it. Like, 
And and I I think that the the high strikeouts sort of just come with the territory because the the zone is bigger. But like he does, I don't think he has the on base skills like Judge does. Do you expect the Pirates to lock up him or Ryan Reynolds with a long term contract by the end of next season? Oh boy. Um. I guess I'll just, be optimistic just one of the two. Say, just one. Yeah, of the I guess two. I'll be optimistic and say yeah. I think if any of them is going to be Cruz, I don't know that they're unless they kind of capitalize now while Reynolds value is down. I don't know that they're going to be able to do it at all. And even now, Reynolds might bet on himself. I think that if contracts were signed today, I think for Reynolds it would take six years, a hundred twenty million. That's what I think. Does that sound right? In the ballpark? That's probably towards like the upper end of the ballpark, but I think you're there. I think for Cruz, and I don't expect... This is why I don't think that they're going to lock up at least Cruz in particular before next before the end of next season. I think that his eyes would be set on a Wonder Franco caliber contract. And I believe Franco got... Was it 10 years, $250 million? I don't remember the specifics, but that sounds pretty close. I think that Cruz would probably look probably be looking for like eight years. I mean, he would, yeah, probably eight years, like one eighty. I don't know. Yeah, I Is mean, it, I don't think I don't think he would command as much as Franco would, but I think he'd be looking for the same type of deal. Yeah, let's look up Wander Franco's contract because I, I think that that would kind of be the baseline comparison. I agree that he would not command as much, but I think that that's like who all of the high pedigree young guys are looking to because they're not looking to Tatis's contract. Like, no other young player is going to get a $300 million contract as early as Tatis did. Franco got 11 years, $182 million. So I guess I, by that, by that, 8 180 is way too high for Cruz. Yeah, but I wouldn't. I thought he I, got more I, than that. I thought so too. I thought he got over a hundred. I thought he got over two hundred million. Huh. But if the Pirates gave the exact same contract out to O'Neill Cruz, I would be pumped about that. Eleven years, one hundred eighty-two million, or let's just call it one hundred eighty million. I think yeah, that's. A, I, I think that's know. a great deal for both sides. I don't think they would do it though. That's kind of like no. I, no, like I struggled. I, mean, to... I don't think that they would do it, but. Like, would you be pumped about that if that was the if those were the terms? Yeah, I'd for, be okay with that. Cruise? Yeah, I think I'd be okay with that. I guess, like, I'd be psyched about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the safe, we're comparing it to Franco. Then they probably overpaid by a little, a little bit, but that's okay. I'm just, I'd just be happy that they locked up somebody long term. <laughs> Maybe ten years, one hundred fifty million for Cruz. That could be doable. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a low annual value but you got to also keep in mind like they're buying out his renewable contract years and his arbitration so it's yeah. a rate you're kind of trading in the security for the the amount of money or the uh, the total later isn't it crazy that ronald acuna's contract with the braves is 10 years 100 million and ozzy albies i think is 10 years 60 million i i can't believe that they got them to sign those yeah, those are so outrageously team friendly. It's just it's, it's incredible. Insane. It's incredible. 
Good for the Braves. I wish I was a I wish I was a natural born Braves fan. I love that team. I love watching them. I do too. That is all we have. I mean, I shouldn't say that is all we have. It has been a long episode. It's been a lot of fun. Really enjoyed the process of giving out these team grades. Hopefully you guys all liked it. And even for some of the harsh grades that I gave out, I hope you at least kind of heard my line of thinking. Definitely wasn't trying to make anyone feel bad about the job that they've done this season. But We, we made these grades with love. We did make these grades with love. There, that was the secret ingredient. But that has been episode 12. Jake, I will not be back for a couple weeks, but on tap for the good people next week is going to be the Triple J Jordan Jerwin Power Hour alongside you, Jake. You guys are going to have this roundtable podcast episode. Well, I got I got to stop you because I'm actually I'm not going to be on that one. That oh. is just the Jordan Jerwin Chaos episode, but I know what they have planned. Okay. And I'm not going to spoil it, but it's, it, it's going to be something completely different than anything we've done. And it should be a lot of fun. Good. I'm looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to that. The following week, which is the week of the 4th of July, I am also not going to be on in just for just as a heads up. The reason why is I'm going out of town this Friday. We'll be on a nine or eight or nine day trip, like hiking out west. And then also when we when we get back, I have some work to do on the new house that we closed on. So just to give some context. I'm not just chilling just because I feel like it. But that week, the 4th of July week, Jake is still looking for a co-host. So we'll probably text the group closer to then to, to see who would like to come on with him. But that is still an open spot. Um, and then I will be back three weeks from now for episode. That'll be 15. If we can't get a guest, we're, guest, we're just, I'm just going to, it's just going to be like an hour long monologue where <laughs> I talk about how much I hate singers. You should get Courtney to come on. I could, I'd, I could we could see. Why not? I was, do, I do like a, do like a shorter episode, like 40, 40, 45 minutes, you know, nothing that's going to overwhelm somebody that's never been on a podcast. Has, has Courtney ever been on a podcast before? Uh, I I think she had to do something for some medical podcast for a degree. Oh, do, don't put, put out an hour and a half banger then. <laughs> but yeah, you should get you should try to get George, uh, Courtney to step up and take that guest, that co-host guest spot. That'd be fun. I guess you don't want to hear me talk about sinkers then. I mean, you could you could sprinkle them in there, but definitely don't want to hear the monologue for an hour. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Not 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 listening to you monologue, but I feel like that would be super challenging to host a podcast all by yourself and talk for an hour. Like how do you how do you breathe? How do you take a drink? It sounds awful to me. But anyway, thanks everyone for listening. Uh we had a lot of fun. Hope you have a lot of fun listening to it, and we will catch you on the next one. E- Yurt.